Section 25 of The Wounded Name by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 8, Part 4 10. Or perhaps we had better not wait any longer for my cousin, said Madame de Villecresne at last, and to the guest. He must be out, I think. The two of them were alone in the salon. Supper had been announced five minutes ago, since which event Laurent had been grimly waiting to cast his bombshell, as, obviously, it had not already been cast. Oh, he is out, he replied briefly. I would have told you before, madame, had I realized that it was for him that you were waiting. For until that moment he had forgotten that Madame de la Gaucheterie was not going to make her appearance at the meal. The news discomposed his companion, he could see. Did she then expect Aymar to come and sup with them, as if nothing had happened? Oh, how strange, she murmured. Did he say, Monsieur de Courtemar, at what time he intended to return? No, madame, he has gone away, I fear, if not for good, at least for some time. So, if you will allow me. He held out his hand. But avoid de Villecresne stood perfectly still. She had gone white, then red, and was now white again. Oh, how was it possible that with such eyes as hers she could have done it? Oh, gone away, she whispered. But at that moment the door suddenly opened and admitted Madame de la Gaucheterie on the arm of her elderly maid, color in her delicate cheeks and a sparkle in her eyes. She might be indisposed, but she was clearly very angry. In her hand was a letter. How oh, that will do, Rose. And when the door had closed, she stood in the middle of the room, extremely erect, and said to Laurent, as my grandson has so little idea of the courtesy due to a guest, and to a departing guest, and one to whom he is under such an obligation, I am constrained to take his place. If you will accept my apologies for his extraordinary behavior, Monsieur de Courtemar, be good enough to give me your arm into the dining room. Laurent, petrified, offered it. The discomfort of the meal was intense. For one thing only was Laurent grateful, that Madame de la Gaucheterie was not so wroth that, after announcing that the culprit had said he had gone off on business connected with the late Epervier, she left the subject of Aymar's defection alone and kept the conversation going on other subjects. Madame de Villecresne, on the contrary, seemed almost dazed. After supper, half to Laurent's relief, the Vicomtesse withdrew again, leaving her granddaughter to give him coffee in the salon. Laurent was in reality quite unwilling to accept even this conventional office from the hands of Madame de Villecresne. And that he had come to think her charming only made this evening's revulsion fiercer. Oh, she, a worthy mate for a mag, whom she had forsaken in his bitterest need, stabbed when, nay, because... He had endured so much for her. But, though he was brimming with anger against her, he would probably have held his hand if she, too, had not murmured as she gave him his cup, something not very coherent about an apology. How was he to guess that she was so torn with misery and dismay that she hardly knew what she was saying 
and caught at any banality, lest she should weep before him. He drank off the coffee and cleared his decks for action. And there's no need for apology, madame, he observed. The situation is not unfamiliar to me. It reminds me of the evening I spent when Monsieur de la Rochetterie was turned out of Arbel. Madame de Villecresne looked faintly startled. Oh, you mean the evening after he was released? No, madame. He never was released, in the sense commonly attached to that term. He was turned out into the road, weak and ill, at a quarter of an hour's notice, and turned out before the eyes of the whole garrison. The blood began to ebb from a voice face. Oh, but why? Why? To humiliate him, and because, weeks earlier, he would not betray Monsieur de Tremblay's plans. The attempt to wring information out of him, then, when he was barely able to speak, nearly killed him, as it was. Oh, tried to wring information out of him, out of Aymar, repeated a voice in a horrified voice. And turned out of Arbel. But, Monsieur de Courtemar, why have I not been told these things before? Why have they been kept from me, and I allowed to think? Logon, who had been standing, sat down heavily. Yes, it might have been better not. But he would do it, anything, to spare you a moment's pain. She stiffened. I do not like being spared, Monsieur de Courtemar. No, madame. And I know that you are brave. Your cousin knows it, too. But it is difficult for a man. For some men, that is. He did not at the moment feel himself to be of their number. To hurt a woman, when by keeping the hurt to themselves, and they can spare her. Oh, I know they think that. And they do not realize what a woman, or what some women, feel about it. And need sparing a woman involve lying to her. And there was a passion of abhorrence in her tone. And then, with extreme suddenness, she caught herself up. I do not mean, of course, that my cousin lied to me. And there was almost defiance in the gaze with which she met Logon's. But as that young man was speechless and trying to digest this remarkable statement, she was able to hurry on to say, And then I was misled when I thought he was well treated at Arbel. I verily believe that she is trying to prove me the liar, Aymar having suddenly become so immaculate, thought Logon. He replied soberly, You must pardon me, madame, but that was not a thing on which anybody consciously misled you. You assumed it, because he had excellent medical attention, and was released. But in other respects, he was treated abominably, at least when the colonel was there. And he proceeded to give her a résumé of what Aymar had undergone at their hands, told her how he had found him exhausted under a haystack, in short, what had nearly been the consequence of his release. A voice turned her face away. After a silence, she said in a voice whose tremulousness was pierced with terror, I knew that there was something more amiss with him than wounds. Monsieur de Courtemac, you swore to me. She became inaudible. All he could catch was the word decline. No, no, madame, he said quickly, anxious to reassure her, for it was plain that in spite of what she had done, she did care. 
No, his condition is merely the result of the blood he has lost. The doctor said so, clearly, and that it would perhaps be as much as a year before he was strong again. Oh, how did he come to, to lose so much blood? She asked him, faintly. Was it then so long, before the enemy found him, after after what happened in the Bois de Fauvet? Oh, not so very long. Not more than an hour, perhaps. But you see that he struggled hard to get free, and being fastened, like that, upright. He broke off before the uncomprehending horror of the face she had raised. How was it possible that she did not know that essence of what had happened in the Bois de Fauvet? How don't you know? he jerked out, almost mechanically. And know what? A struggle to get free. Fastened. Monsieur de Courtemar, what awful thing are you talking about? And Laurent cursed himself. Aymar had not told her the worst. Equally, of course, he did not wish her to know it. Oh, nothing, madame, he stammered. I would not for worlds have mentioned it had I not thought that you knew already. Oh, God, cried the girl, rather hysterically, more things kept from me. Oh, for pity's sake, monsieur, try to forget that I am a woman. Logan, recovering himself, bowed. If you wish it. And on that, sparing her very little, he did tell her the true and full story of the Bois de Fauvette. But he had the grace not to look at her, meanwhile. A mark made out that it was all over, and very quickly, done in the surprise, almost a mistake, she said faintly at the end. On the contrary, replied Laurent remorselessly, it was as protracted and deliberate as I've told you. You can imagine that the imperialists, finding him in the situation they did, were not likely to show him more consideration than, than some of his friends have done since. He was taken to Agbel, senseless, in a farm cart, how he was looked on there, I've told you. One would have thought he had paid enough. He was very brutal. He knew it. He was going very far. He did not care. He was so worked up that a very little more would have brought out the story of the ramrod. But there was also a limit to what his hearer could endure. He saw her now get up and ask him to excuse her for a few minutes. As he shut the door which he had held open for her, he was almost sure that he heard a stifled sob on the other side. Then he paced up and down the room, thinking, Oh, I've done it now. What would Aymar say if he knew? Oh, I don't care. I don't care. It was time she heard these things. Look what keeping this from her has resulted in. And this was his most secret thought. She has hurt Aymar bitterly, unbearably. How oh, but I have hurt her. He did not believe that she would reappear that evening, and she did not. By that he knew that his blows had gone home. After waiting a little, he wandered round the salon again, coming finally to an anchor in front of the picture of the two children. How oh, that, to end in this. How could you, he said to the laughing little girl, and soon afterwards went unhappily, guiltily, yet unrepentantly, to bed. 11. When Laurent came downstairs next morning, after taking his farewell of the Vicomtesse, 
he was greatly surprised to find Madame de Villecresne, a little ghost in white organdy, in the hall, waiting for him as was evident by her request that he would speak to her if he had the time. And as he went out with her into the garden, which she seemed to indicate as the scene of their interview, his conscience rather smote him for last evening's free speech. But the mantle of the avenger had not yet fallen from his shoulders. Madame de Villecresne's first words, however, gave the panoply a perceptible twitch. "'I'm very grateful to you for speaking to me as you did last night, Monsieur de Courtemagne,' she said. "'I'm sure you cannot have liked doing it.' Logon surveyed the grass at his feet. "'I want, while I still have the chance, to ask you something more.' They were now in the middle of the rose garden, by the sundial, and here she paused, paused, too, in her speech, and looked away. Whatever she was going to ask him was not easy to bring out. He supposed he must give her time, even if he had to hurry for the diligence. So he looked down in silence at the sundial, which assured him in its antiquated French, Ici ne verra que les heures sans nuage though a later hand had scrawled on the copper of the dial the cynical proviso, si de telle heure existant. Suddenly it came out, in a voice that shook. Is it really true that it was all done for me? Yes, madame, said Laurent. And then it is the other story that is not true, said the voice still more tremblingly. At that the young man looked at her. Do you mean the sending of the letter as part of a plan already made? Well, they are both true. Madame de Villecresne did not exclaim that that could not be, nor did she ask him how it was possible. She went very slowly to the nearest rose hedge and picked a rose or two. And then she came back. That was what a mag said she murmured, as if to herself. If I could only see how the two stories are compatible. If I could only see it. And the roses were clutched in her two hands, as if they wore no thorns. Shall I try to explain it to you? suggested Laurent, and gently. She seemed so young, suddenly, only a girl, only his own age. She was amazingly free from rancor, too, considering what his explanations of last night had been like, for she said, with a really touching gratitude, Oh, if only you would, Monsieur de Cotomac. Over the sundial, then, Laurent explained to the very best of his ability, and found himself, like a mark before him, tracing out the figures there, meanwhile. But I cannot understand how a mark could be so deluded, broke out Madame de Villecresne at the end. Monsieur de Vaubernier, perhaps, but a mag. The advocate reminded her that she had once obtained military information for her cousin, as he well knew, reminded her also of the known fate of Marie Lassard. Before the cruel story of the practical joke, he hesitated a moment in his newfound consideration, but for a mag's sake she must hear it. Only since she was so pale already, he suggested a move to the stone bench in the corner, and she complied. 
and then in the very place where the lying information had, all innocently, been passed on to Aine Mag, he showed her how convincing it had been. And, madame, he concluded, put yourself in your cousin's place, and suppose yourself waiting for his arrival here in this very garden, and suppose yourself receiving instead news of his desperate peril. And, suppose further, that you had in your pocket a plan for the destruction of the enemy, which you had been on the point already of putting into practice, which indeed needed only the pretext of a bargain to make it plausible. And do you mean to say that you would have gone peaceably to bed and said nothing can be done? No, she said with a strangled sob. No, indeed, I would not. And so he was tricked, <laughs> tricked, all this misery. As she twisted her now empty hands in an effort to keep her composure, Laurent saw how her roses had wounded them. Yet a Mac told me, she went on, recovering herself, and facing him as pale and piteous as a child. A Mac told me some things that were not true, and that were not true at all. I could not have believed that he would tell the merest fraction of a lie, even to spare me. Logon could not bear those little scratched hands, and in an almost fatherly way he took out his pocket handkerchief. If you will permit me, madame. And he dabbed at the beads of blood, the girl apparently quite oblivious of what he was doing. I could not have believed that he would lie, she repeated. Yes, that was the main stumbling block of the situation, and Aymar had known it, too. No, I can quite understand your feeling that about him, said Aymar's friend, losing the passive hands. I should think that a more naturally truthful person does not exist. And yet, madame, there are instincts. For instance, I dare say it has not struck you that last night, to shield him, you told a lie yourself. I, she exclaimed, and a flush stained her pallor. It was so instinctive that you have forgotten it already. I expect you were hardly aware of it at the time. Yet, to protect him from what I might think of him, you told me, in so many words, that your cousin had not lied to you. Can you deny that? He smiled at her. He did feel himself rather like a wise uncle now, an odd sensation. The flush ran over a voice face again. She dropped her eyes to a tiny red spot on her muslin gown. That is quite true, she murmured. And do you think he would ever lie to save himself, went on Laurent, pursuing his advantage, any more than you would? She shook her head mutely. But, Monsieur de Coutemar, if he had not kept me so much in the dark, let me think that I knew it all, and left me to be enlightened by Madame de Mauxon. It is that which hurts so. Yes, I dare say that was a mistake, assented Laurent, feeling about sixty by this time. It was a risk, but only his consideration for you prompted him to take it. Yet, as far as that goes, were not you and he leagued together to keep your grandmother a great deal more in the dark? And did that trouble you, the thought of what was being kept from her? Avoy raised her eyes and looked at him. No, she said, 
It seemed the only, the right thing to do. One does these things instinctively, you see, with those one cares for, the sagacious young man pointed out to her. She pondered this, her eyes downcast. Never could the mentor beside her have imagined himself admitted into so much intimacy. How oh, heaven sent, he had made good use of it. He sat quite motionless, for it was a thousand times better to miss the diligence altogether than to cut short this wonderful chance she had given him. Aimard could not have explained fully to her yesterday, or else she had been in no state to comprehend the explanation. As he revolved this conclusion, Avoy herself said suddenly, Oh, but I'm forgetting. You will miss the coach if I keep you longer. She rose, growing less the child. I can never thank you properly, Monsieur de Courtemar, for what you've done. At least now I understand. Her lip suddenly trembled. I have really heard everything now, have I not? Oh, everything that matters, replied Laurent after a second's hesitation. The ramrod story had so thin a connection with her, and it would horrify her so. And his last night's desire to do this was now as dead as last night's dreams. No, he exclaimed abruptly. There is one fact more I should like you to know. Your cousin has done many brave things in his career, but you have never heard the bravest. And it was done for you. Therewith he sat down again and told her the story of the interview with Colonel Richard. 12. There did not seem to be any place remote enough to shelter her grief and her remorse. Not the house, where Grandmère might at any time find or summon her. Not the rose garden, where she, the faithless lover, had just said farewell to the faithful friend. Not the orchard, where she had once been comforted, with lies, as she had said to Aymar yesterday. They were lies. But he was not a liar. Yet she had told him that he was, told him that he had sold his honor, flung his justification back in his face. At the one moment in their lives when her trust in him should have stood firm, it had snapped like a rotten thread. After all that he had suffered for her sake, it had remained for her, who loved him, and to give him the last, the intolerable, enduring wound. The lover who, as she had just learnt, had not spared to crucify for her his pride and his most intimate feelings, and make an appeal to his victorious enemy for silence. And this Colonel Richard, a stranger, a foe, who knew everything, had taken his hand, whereas she... The Aven, by which at last she sat dry-eyed, with a pain in her breast as though it were her own heart, and not a mag's, which she had stabbed, rippled contentedly through the pastures, on its way to pont au Gaucher. Yes, and despite the strain, the unfulfillment, it seemed to her now that these past years at Cécigne had been like this placid and contented stream, compared with the torment into which one hour had hurried her life. Oh, if only she had been able to keep the pale sunshine of those days, even though it should never have been transmuted into a brighter radiance. They would never come again.
Never, never. The Avene smiled assent. A wagtail walked alertly at the brink, and the martins swooped above it. But it was going to pont au That afternoon, Anselme, Aimag's man, came to her and apologetically asked her if she had enough influence to get Sagassin out of Monsieur le Vicomte's room, as he refused to stir or to let any of the servants enter. She went in to try. She might have hesitated had she realized how full the empty room would be of Aimag's presence, and how poignantly the traces of his hasty departure would smite at her. The disorder which no one had repaired, and because Sagassin would not admit even Anselme into the sanctuary which he was guarding. She could not bear to look at them, and turned her attention instead on the guardian himself, who, having risen at her entrance with a soberly wagging tail, was now thrusting his nose into her hand. But even as she looked at him, he stalked back to his post by the bed, and lay down in his former attitude, his nose on his paws. A boy walked to the door, calling him, and telling him he must come out of the room. But he only looked at her. He did not stir. The childish thought then came to her that, wise as he was, he knew that his master was soon coming back, and that his refusing to move was a sign of this. But she must put his knowledge to a genuine test, for if he consented to come away, it would show that Imag was not returning. So she took a coat lying on a chair and showed it to him, and while he sniffed at it, she told him that he must take care of it downstairs. Then, going to the door, she held it out to him and called him. He lifted his head and gazed at her earnestly with his wonderful, inscrutable eyes, and she looked back at him and said in her heart, Oh, don't come, Sagassin. Then, with a sigh, he got up and came to the door. So she knew that Aimag was not coming back. She stood with a coat pressed closely to her, and eyes that were beginning to swim. And then she opened the door, called to a passing servant, and told her to take the coat and the dog downstairs, and going back, turned the key in the lock. I cannot bear to see you. Well, she had her wish. She could not see him. She would never see him at Cecine again. There was no danger of his finding her here in his room, any more than there was a chance of unsaying what she had said, of begging him to listen, and to believe that she had spoken in the confusion of shock and fear. He was gone. He was gone, and on the hearthstone, broken and thrown aside, lay the useless Shaktiyi. Had it been thrown there, because he felt that all it represented was over for him, now? Oh, no, no, no. He might not be her lover any more, but he should not. He could not cease to be Loiselog, and he should not throw away the talisman. She had not now the right to keep it for him, herself, and she looked round the deserted room for a safe place in which to bestow it. Out of a half-open drawer, there trailed the sleeve of a uniform. The Chactier seemed to have more affinity with that than with anything else. She put it for a moment to her lips, and, taking out the coat, slipped the amulet into the breast pocket. And then she gave a miserable little laugh. 
though I always said I should end by being superstitious about that thing. She was on the point of leaving the room, when, passing by the bed, she perceived something she had not noticed before. By the impress on the coverlet, it was clear that at some point yesterday, Aymar must have thrown himself there, worn out, he who had never before in his life known other than reasonable fatigue. And probably he had dragged himself from this refuge to come down to that interview with her. A voice bent over the pillow as though his head were really resting there and broke suddenly into bitter sobbing. How she got through the next three empty heartsick days she could hardly tell. On the third she became desperate, for if a mag really were not returning and the precious hours were slipping away and she was doing nothing to make a last effort to retrieve her shattered happiness or even to tell him how deeply she sorrowed for what she had done to him. He must be thinking, if he thought of her at all, and that she was still of the same mind. But what could she do? She had no idea where he was, and unfortunately she had never asked Monsieur de Courtemac if he knew. But Evenot might know, because Aymar had spoken in his note to Madame de la Gauchetterie of his having gone on business connected with the Apparvier. And then it suddenly occurred to her that Aymar might actually be found in person at Evenot's cottage and conferring with him. And what if she, too, went there in person? And, though the thought of that meeting was not easy to face, she set out that afternoon on horseback, a groom following her, for the cottage in the wood to which she had once declared that she would make pilgrimage. But she had not ridden half the distance when she saw, between the chestnut balls, another horse and rider coming slowly towards her. The horse she knew in a moment. And the rider. Her heart stood still. No, certainly not a mag. She moved forward again and soon saw, with an indescribable sinking, that it was Evenot himself, riding the mare very softly, the reins in his right hand. He had to shift them to his teeth before he could uncover and remove the reins again before he could speak. But a voice guessed. Monsieur le Vicomte. Yes, madame, he has been with us these three days. But he left this morning early, and I do not know where he has gone. A long distance, I think, for he went to catch the diligence. I'm bringing Hirondelle back to Cécigne, as he ordered me. And perhaps madame would wish to ride her now, if I changed the saddles. No, said a voice with a catch in her breath, as she turned her horse's head homewards. No, stay where you are, Evenot. I think Monsieur le Vicomte would prefer it. End of section 25